Yes, and you are in Nashville, and Nathan is in Iowa City, and I am in Chicago, so this is like truly a cross state lines. This is a federal podcast at this point. Hello, and welcome to Filmcast Pod Scene. I'm Nathan Platt, and I teach music and film history at the University of Iowa. And I'm Rebecca Fons, Film Scene's Programming Director. On today's episode, we're joined by two special guests. First up, we welcome director Harula Rose, who will chat with us about her feature film debut, Once Upon a River, the challenges and joys of adapting a beloved novel, working with her actors, and how the music of Once Upon a River is a critical part of the film's story. Then my colleague, programmer of film scenes popular Late Shift at the Grindhouse, and the most dedicated projectionist in the state of Iowa, Ross Meyer, will join us to share his five favorite scary movies for the month of October. Nathan, you can insert some spooky sound effects here. Is there a day when something happened that completely changed the rest of your life? It's thrilling when that something is good, terrifying when it isn't. But often it's what we do in the immediate aftermath of the event that sets the course for what follows. That's the idea that comes to mind while watching Harula Rose's Once Upon a River, a film adaptation of Bonnie Jo Campbell's 2011 book. The protagonist, Margot, is a high school girl of Native American descent who early in the film has a sexual encounter with an older white relative. That's enough concern for one story, but the decisions made next take Margot to even more difficult places. As Margot travels rivers and roads to find the mother who left her as a child, she learns about herself through the people she encounters on the way. The story is set in a frontier of sorts, spaces where rivers and forests meet industry plants and trailer parks. It is a visually and sonically gentle film. The autumnal setting and colorful leaves make it perfect watching for October. Mom always said she never belonged here with me and Daddy, that the river stink drove her crazy. And the montages of Margot in motion give us time to think about her situation and even wince at some of her decisions. In other words, it's a great film to talk about with others. It doesn't try to resolve the moral gray areas that it explores. Written and directed by Harula Rose, this Midwestern Gothic Americana story is, in the words of Jane Smiley for the New York Times, an excellent American parable about the consequences of our favorite ideal, freedom. We're so excited to welcome writer, director, and producer Harula Rose to the podcast. Harula, welcome. Thank you for having me. We wanted to dive in and, and you know, uh, and ask our first question about your adaptation experience. So Iowa City is the UNESCO City of Literature, and it's the home of the Iowa Writers Workshop. And it's a very it's a book town, you know, so I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with um, with the original uh, novel by Bonnie Jo Campbell. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you found the story and, and what your experience was discovering the story and then and then the process to get it to the cinema and to get it to screen? 
I would love to. That's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, I fell in love with this story because Bonnie Jo Campbell also is a University of Chicago alum. And so I was looking through the alumni magazine and I was actively looking for a long time for a story that I felt would resonate with me in that very intrinsic like bone level because um, I knew you had to basically be married to it for years after working in film on other people's projects and just how it goes. And I remember seeing a picture of Bonnie Jo there was this blurb about upcoming books and it was once upon a river and there was this um you know it explained the story and the character and then there was this picture of her the writer and there was something about the expression in her eyes that i was like i want to know what story she's telling and then i read the blurb and it really was captivating to me and then i you know got a copy of the book and i read it and i thought oh my god i think i found it and it's very ambitious, it's wildly difficult and challenging, but I think I found it. And then I read it again, and then I was convinced. And then I found a way to contact her, um, and I drove up to her house, and she said, why don't we meet at the river shack that inspired the story, which is on the St. Joseph River in Michigan. And so I drove up there, and we had this outside tea or coffee, and she fed me, uh, and we, we're, you know, looking eye to eye, seeing eye to eye and um, finishing each other's sentences in terms of the portrayal of this character as being someone who, you know, she goes through a lot. There's obviously a lot of trauma to be dealt with. And it was a really interesting take that she, while she is a victim, she also is empowered as someone who survives and finds her way. And I thought there was something really dark and also beautiful about all of that. Everything, the world, the the way in which she could paint a picture with her words is already cinematic. And, um, and so then we just kept, you know, it was weird. It was like we were in the same psychic space. Now why on earth is a girl skinning a rabbit in a picnic park? I'm not afraid of protecting myself when I have to, okay? What tribe? I'm not sure. Somewhere out west? I'm Cherokee from Oklahoma. I'm studying the routes from Canada on down. Why? What's your name? Margo. Let me tell you something, Margo. People who came to this country and took over, they never intended for us to survive. And, you know, from there, obviously, that was years ago. And then obviously the logistics of it are a much different story because then it's when do you get the actual um, belief in yourself and, and believing in how to actually make it physically happen? Where do you get the canoe and the dead deer? And before all that happens, you have to get the money. And before all that happens, you have to do this adaptation of a script, which I've been meaning to write a piece on this. A lot of it was the collapsing of time that was the big issue because I've, the book is 300 some pages and it takes place over two years. And in a 90 minute space where you wanna take people on a journey and you really want them to stay in that subjective experience with the character, it's quite difficult to do that um, and keep changing time. So I, I thought, okay, I need to pick how am I going to do this? You have to create sort of composite characters or leave certain things out. There was one relationship that I was really heavy hearted to have to leave out. And um, it, it felt like it was reiterating a point that we already know about her character's essence. So it felt like, why would I just waste time doing that? I need to cut the whole thing. And I was so bummed. So my first draft was a long script 
and I was trying to do everything. And then it was just like paring it down and paring it down to its very essence. And you continue to do that throughout. You're like writing and rewriting, you're shooting, you're rewriting, you're editing and you're rewriting. And in many ways, editing is your final rewrite, essentially. And did did Bonnie Jo collaborate with you at all in your your drafts? Did, how did how did you work with her? Yes, uh, yes and no. So she said to me, "This is very much your baby. Like I gave birth to it. Now you're marrying it. So good luck." <laughs> um, it was really a good headspace to be in with a collaborator because she said, "This is uh, separation. You know, it's a different medium, and I, I don't want it to affect." my relationship with the story. But obviously I, I'm very respectful and conscientious of her and all the time. And her story with this is really fascinating too, which I'm happy to share with all those book people out there, my favorite people. Um, she uh, said, you know, it's, it's, it's good to have a separation and if you wanna share it with me, fine. And so I, sh- I shared a draft or two with her just to make sure it was okay. And she gave me her blessing and then I felt good. I, I really wanted her to have read it first. It just would have felt weird to not have that so yeah yeah i'm curious about you mentioned the how a lot of the work was compression right sort of figuring out how to sort of condense this this longer tale and this story Mm -hmm. that spreads over a greater period of time into something more sort of cinema uh friendly were there other did the reverse process happen because i think of oftentimes with something that might only take a sentence or two in a book suddenly becomes much more present because it's depicted visually and perhaps we literally live with it longer because of the scene. Yeah, that's a great question too. I feel like when you have these moments of her, so Bonnie Jo makes this very funny sentence many times through this process since we met. She said, I know I didn't do you any favors creating a protagonist with not much dialogue, you know, good luck. And I kind of love that about it because you are seeing this person's inner life coming out. And then how do you do that without dialogue? In the book, you're in her head and it makes sense. So part of what what elongating moments were, were more about like studying this this person, this creature and how she's like part feral and part civilized and like seeing her adapt to the different surroundings she was in. So like if she's carving wood or she's skinning an animal, like how is she relating to those, those quandaries in her life and giving those beats more time? Um, and not glossing over them. And then like when she's on the boat, it's a really cool thing that you can do with film. You can just be like, all right, a day has passed. You have now seen the sun come up and you've seen it go down and then you've seen it come up again. And then that's like however long you need it to take, but you've now spent this time with her and you've been in that emotional space with her and you can really empathize with what she's gone through and this loss or what she's finding. You know, the performer, uh, your actress, Kennedy De La Serna, is really, I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, she was, she's a, this is her first performance, and she's really doing a, so much heavy lifting, but there's not that much dialogue, you know, so it is very physical, it's a very physical performance, there's a lot not, not said, you know, obviously, um, so I just am curious, how did you find her, and then how did you work with her to, to get her to get to this commanding performance place? I found her probably praying to the gods in sheer desperation and they took pity on me. Um, The literal story with that is very funny. We were in the 11th hour and we would have had to call off the whole shoot because we're up against, it was this time of year and it was going to get really cold. 
And a lot of it, as you know, is outdoors. So the day after we wrapped, it snowed. And I was right. My inner witch was like, you need to do this now. Um, and I hadn't found the lead yet. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And this girl, Jules, who worked, you know, all of us had multiple hats because there was not a lot of money. Um, so she was working as a casting assistant and like helping me with stuff and production assistants and just like many things. And she would put up these ads on like backstage.com and all this stuff. And we'd look at all, so many people. We had a casting director who just kind of was like, ultimately like, you're like Goldilocks. There's something wrong with everybody. And so then Jules was like, no, there's this one last girl. I had my head buried in a pillow. I was like, going to cry because we finally had the money to shoot. We had our locations. We had our crew. We were really ready to go. We had a fixed date and it was um, in September of that year. And um, and then all of a sudden there's just no girl and none of them were quite right. And then she plays this video and I saw her and I knew, and she had literally just submitted it. And then we called her and um, I knew I had to do a lens test and luckily she was based in New York. And so I said, hey, so we're gonna, Jules actually called first and she said, the director wants to meet you. And Kennedy was like, is this some kind of hoax? Are you guys psychopaths like in her head? She was like, yeah, yeah. And little did I know at the time it was her birthday also. And she came to this camera test to do a reading and work with another friend who um, acted with her in the scene. And I mean, we put like candles on the floor of a corporate space, like an office space to pretend like it was campfire and she could make anything work. You know, it's just, she's just so truthful. And, uh, and so I knew I could work with her and she could do, she was like, I don't have a problem with this actual content. I don't have a problem with this. And by the way, I grew up on a farm and I'm really comfortable outdoors with animals. And I was like, how did she, this creature just like appear? You know, and it was like a day or 48 hours before we were gonna call the whole thing off. It was unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, she's incredible. And um, I hope she has a great career. I could see it happening, you know. Kid, you are filthy. Don't you ever take a bath? Well, I was camping. Camping alone? Girl your age should be with her family. Well, I'm trying to find my mom. And I had to hitchhike. If you want a shower, you don't need to ask for it. That actually kind of leads into our, another question we had to ask, which is this, you know, Margot is, is on this Odyssey-like journey and keeps running into all of these interesting characters. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the process of finding those people and then also kind of capturing those relationships? Yeah. So um, Bonnie Jo has a funny story about this, too, when she says it's like an Odyssey, only she's not fighting monsters. The monsters are the men. <laughs> she's very funny about it. Um, like, <laughs> different things she has to grapple with to find her own self and um mm. but so looking at it as an allegory was kind of fun sometimes like the one-eyed man and you know all that stuff um sure mm -hmm. finding everyone was a really you just know when you found the right thing i guess it's like true love you know it kind of it knows you before you know it or something like you just feel it and you know when it's right like every single person who came on board like there were other options and none of them felt right and they were ultimately the only option for the role were the people that are in it um so that was kind of cool i think i'm really really proud of everyone and this cast is awesome they had this great chemistry and i don't know i just um had a great time working with all of them and then they all had a great time working with each other and it, it was a special experience i think for sure 
And, you know, with, with independent film, so often the, the timeline is short, the budget is small, you know, the, you know, you I could sense as a Midwesterner, I was like, it's getting cold on this shoot. You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. so I wonder, you know, did you have rehearsal time or like, you know, was it just kind of like run and gun? Both. It was a combo of both. So I had this wonderful team, obviously, like no, no director ever does anything alone. Like I had this incredible cinematographer and this awesome costume designer and production designer and everybody's there because they love it. They all also happen to be women, which I found interesting. I didn't even like consciously intend for it to be that way, but that's just how it worked out. And I think that was cool because Charlotte has such an interesting way with like her instincts and her way she would follow Kennedy's body as she was operating the camera. So it felt very, again, we had watched a lot of reference films together, but they locked into a zone too. Like there's a way in which you start to become this strange little unit and you know how to anticipate what's going to happen and how to capture it. And um, obviously you're always shaping that in the moment. Like when we had rehearsal time, it was amazing. And we needed it for the scenes where there were three actors or more like just to time things out, any of the stunt stuff and the, um, you know, things having to do with when John Ashton and Ken Head and, and Kennedy were all in the same room together. We did rehearse those a bit, but again, it was, you still have to shoot, you know, like I'm a fan of, of trying to capture all of those moments because you just don't know when you're going to get the magic take. It could be the first one. So um, it's a combo of both. We, it was, there was a lot of run and gun, but the good thing about having a small crew and no money and no real rules in a sense, except for like, don't die, um, is you can be like, hey, look at that flower, get it, let's go, oh wait, Charlotte, that bird, and she'd be like, boom. And then, you know, it was, it was just very cool to have that option, like on the weekends where we were all staying essentially in a film camp of sorts, like I found these cabins along this water, um, and you know, everybody had a, a fun time like living there for a while. We became this little community. We'd be like, oh, let's capture this on the water. Or, hey, Kennedy, can you come out and do this? Like, you end up getting a lot more time. You've worked on music videos before, and you also are a songwriter and recording artist. Um, and I was just curious about that, how that affects how you approach film, and to what extent does do you sort of try to bring your musicianly qualities to film, not necessarily just to the music, but also to just kind of the whole experience, whether the, the, the collaboration, the, the, the editing, those kinds of things. Well, I like to think that I, I I make movies as though it's making music with people because you are you have this thing that's planned, right? But then you also have to improvise. So it's a nice balance of having a clear sense of what you need and what you want to get and what you know you have to get. And then also in the moment being able to to be open to whatever is the magical thing or the new thing or um, an idea that might occur to you like as you're filming it. So um that, that I think is, it's helpful that I come from music because I'm really open to that and I like it. Um, and I like also using music up front and luckily I'm really good friends with my composer. So I was able to give him a script before we'd even shot anything and said like, hey, can you just like, you know, riff on some of these and like come up with some themes for the characters. And I would use those themes on set. I'd play it for John Ashton or Kennedy or whoever and, and be like, this is the song and this is the score cue that we're thinking of using for this piece. And it, it's really helpful. Like Will Oldham had written a song 
um, that just came out last week, actually. It's called Always Bound. We're releasing a couple, like a song a week of the soundtrack. And he wrote this song. He, we could um, play it on these Bluetooth speakers in the woods. And, and it was our first shot of the film. And it really like felt very communal and special to have this kind of creative force that was created for this personal story. My road is elusive I can't leave my skin I would leave what's like this, intrusive this Always Bound is about, you know, taking a journey and getting away and finding yourself. And so it was cool to have that and like to, to shoot some of the stuff of her by the fire, like eating out of the can and stuff. So I think it made us feel inspired and just trying to bring those things that usually happen later in the process up front so it feels a little more cohesive nice. I, I really like using music that way for sure. Is the composer Zach Ray? He's a total genius. I mean, he can play every instrument. Because yeah, usually music is done in post and they're working with a rough cut of the film and, and whatnot. So the idea that you're actually allowing the, the music that he's written based on the script to be kind of part of the, the production and what people are responding to on set is, that's really special. It was neat. I remember driving John Ashton to set one day and playing it for him in the car. And he was like, that's awesome. Like he, he I could see the wheels turning like, you know, behind his eyes. It was really neat. So I've. I'm lucky that, you know, Zach could do that and finding the instrumentation and everything too. Like we didn't want it to be like your typical like banjo slide guitar thing that you hear in uh -huh. rural Americana type thing. So we were trying to find a sound that was more like other, um, but still mm -hmm. timeless and relatable. Um, so yeah. That's that's thank you. I and and some of your music is in the film, right? I co-wrote a song with Peter Bradley Adams and Zach Ray here in Nashville that we used. I really wanted it to be a female voice um, when she's getting the water at the end. I take my time, I breathe in and out, steady in my aim, feet on the ground. I did write a song about Margot and um, you know, that came years ago. That was on my record that came out in 2016 with 30 Tigers, who's this Nashville-based label that's like put it, they also are now doing more film stuff. This was their first um, like narrative feature film that they executive produced. And um, they put out that record with me. And um, that was mostly because I was suffering because I hadn't gotten close to making the movie yet, but I still wanted to be like working on the character and like, who is she and what is she about? And so I don't know, this song just came tumbling out and I thought, well, why not put it on a record? I think that's awesome. Like I, when I read about that, I thought, wow, I, I don't know that I could think of like any other situation where somebody's done that, where like a director has written music about a character as a way of kind of, you know, reflecting on that character and thinking through that character. And on that, if you can say, you know, what are you working on now? It's a weird time to be a creative person. 2020 has been very strange and there are a lot of challenges, but there have been opportunities within the challenge. So are you working on a new adaptation or anything that you can share with us? 
Yeah, I guess I love working with writers and I like writing and co-writing. I love all forms of it. Um, Catherine Lacey uh, and I are working on something together and um, I love her books. And this is a, a story that we collaborated on that she wrote the script for. And um, so we're hoping to get that off the ground. But the Nashville one, the reason I'm in Tennessee is because I'm scouting for locations for a, a film that's um, also in sort of early stages. We're looking at actors and I'm looking at locations. And it would have been amazing if this year was what it was supposed to be, which was, I was supposed to ideally be shooting right now, but you know, everything got pushed back. So in a way, I'm hoping that that's all meant to be because it gives you more time to to find things. I mean, I, it's hard to remain optimistic, but I think we kind of have to. Um, and I'm always reading stuff. I mean, um, I'm reading Eula Biss's new book and I, I like to read like everything lately. It's been like, I'll read essays or articles because it just feels like everything else wants your attention so much. And I, I, when I read a novel, I like really want to devote the time to it. Otherwise I like feel guilty. It's been such a great opportunity to talk to you and um, and thank you for a beautiful film that feels thoughtful and genuine and delicately told and um, and for such a great story behind the story. Yeah, thank you for all your amazing questions. Like I didn't even realize any time had gone by, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Once Upon a River is available in Film Scene's virtual screening room beginning October 2nd. Make sure to stick around after you watch the film for a video Q&A with Rebecca, Harula, and some special guests. The film is free for Film Scene members all of October. Members, check your inbox for details. If you've ever been to Film Scene on a Wednesday night after 9 p.m., you know that Late Shift at the Grindhouse is a party. Together with Aaron Holmgren and Joe Dadarian, my colleague Ross Meyer puts together a weekly celebration of all things cult. From classic horror films like The Thing, to disaster masterpieces like Tammy and the T-Rex, Late Shift to the Grindhouse is home away from home for lovers of horror, gross-out, nostalgia, and subculture. In addition to being the Grindhouse programmer, Ross is also Film Scenes Facilities Director and Lead Projectionist, which means ultimately he makes the movies happen and he never sleeps. Ross, welcome to Filmcast Podscene. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we brought you here on a mission. As the temperatures drop and we approach Halloween, we wanted to get the Ross Meyer all-time five favorite scary movies list. So can you kick us off with number one? Fantastic. Yeah. So I, I got a, a list here and a couple little tidbits uh, to throw in. So um, I'll start off. This is probably near the top of a lot of people's lists. but. Uh, 1968, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. It's on any top ten list of any genre, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and it would definitely be at the top of my Halloween season viewing. Uh, I first saw this movie when I was about 13. I picked it up on VHS tape at uh, a flea market in the Walmart parking lot. And in these days, you know, Walmarts are very corporate and structured and whatever. But once upon a time, you know, they were a little bit more Wild West. And there was a big <laughs> flea market with like junk vendors uh, in a big circus tent in the parking lot of Walmart. And there was a, a guy there selling Night of the Living Dead. It was actually a double feature tape of Night of the Living Dead 
and Reefer Madness. Uh, and then I also picked up a tape of Horrible Horror, which is a collection of trailers and clips and things hosted by a, a, a sort of B-movie celebrity uh, horror host named Zachary. And I really feel like if I didn't pick up those two tapes as a young 13-year-old uh, on that you know Saturday afternoon in a circus tent in the Walmart parking lot, my life might be completely different. So uh, that's that's the movie for me. It's, it's a great movie, uh, and it's also... Uh, charming as uh you know young me the development of who i am get some more lights on in this house did you feel like 13 was too young to watch that movie did it like were you like oh my gosh i'm this is really too scary or were you like this is great i mean like i remember you know watching movies when i was too young to watch them so how how did you how did 13 year old ross take it um, you know, I've been uh, like taping movies off of, you know, USA Network and whatever, you know, the average Godzilla movies and monster movies of different types. Uh, and this one, I, you know, the zombie stuff is creepy for sure. Absolutely creepy. Uh, but what, you know, shocked 13 year old me is the, you know, the allegory of, of you know, the racism, the, the social justice, you know, that's what hit me uh and hit me like a sledgehammer you know that movie is so gripping and sad and you know powerful you know romero slipped a little bit more into his scary movies than a lot of people do how long you guys been down there i could use some help up here that's the cellar it's the safest place you mean you didn't hear the racket we were making up here how were we supposed to know what was going on could have been those things for all we knew that girl was screaming Sure, you must know what a girl screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody ever needed help. Look, it's kind of hard to hear what's going on from down there. We thought we could hear screams, but for all we knew, that could have meant those things were in the house afterward. And you wouldn't come up and help. Well, if there were more... The racket sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How were we supposed to know what was going on? Now, wait a minute. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear from down there. Now you say it sounded like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you get your story straight, man. All right, now you tell me. I'm not going to take that kind of a chance when we got a safe place. We luck into a safe place, and you're telling us we got to risk our lives just because somebody might need help, huh? Yeah, something like that. That's amazing. We were just talking, Nathan and I were talking before we started recording about how the horror genre so often has been um, a place where uh, filmmakers and 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 especially filmmaker, female filmmakers, filmmakers of color, queer filmmakers have found a place to sort of tell these allegories and to you know put in messages that are that are still very very. Um, uh, applicable today and and that you so the Romero you know he was he was he was subversive in that he was you know telling us a zombie story and showing us a zombie movie but there was much more to the story than that so at this point there is no really authentic way for us to say who or what to look for and guard yourself against misshapen monsters reaction of law enforcement officials is one of complete bewilderment at this hour so far we have been unable to determine that any kind of organized investigation is yet underway police sheriff deputies and emergency ambulances are literally deluged with calls for help but the scene can best be described as mayhem mayors of pittsburgh philadelphia and miami along with the governors of several eastern and midwestern states have indicated the national guard may be mobilized at any moment but that has not happened as yet only advice our reporters have been able to get from official sources is for private citizens to stay in their homes behind locked doors. Do not venture outside for any reason until the nature of this crisis has been determined. 
Awesome. Okay, that's that's a very good good one. Uh, number two for you. All right, let's go with uh, the Beyond from 1981. This is uh, an Italian horror film from Lucio Fulci. Uh, we screened this at Film Scene as part of Film Screen, the our uh, all night horror marathon in 2019. You are Liza, aren't you? Yes. My name is Emily. I've been looking for you. Uh, I also screened this one on when it had a 35 millimeter restoration in uh, the late 90s uh, when I was uh, programming the Bijou uh, at the university. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a good one. Go back to where you came from and hurry. Leave this place. It's super creepy, just existential dread, very Lovecraftian. The characters are doomed before the first second of footage has hit the screen. They're all doomed to die, and, and it's uh, it's good. The soundtrack is great. Um, it's got uh, some super creepy, super gross effects. It's a haunted uh, Louisiana hotel built on a gateway to hell. Uh, there's lots of spooky hospital, spooky morgue stuff. There's uh acid and spiders and uh zombies of course show up like when you think you've got this film you know figured out then all of a sudden you know zombies kick in in the third act uh so it it's a good one and uh yeah i I, and it plays so good with the crowd oh some weird story that emily told me about room 36. emily who's emily when i was at the bijou you know we played uh, six screenings of the beyond and to watch, you know, the, the crowds showed up and some of them were knew what they were getting into and some of them didn't. And there was one screening, especially where like a guy was, you know, he literally like stood up and shook his fist at the screen and yelled <laughs> at the character, like to shoot him in the head. You know, so it was fun. Well, and you know, I also, I think horror films and the horror genre and what you show at Grindhouse is so great for audiences because, you know, it is like you're either screaming and like, you know, or cringing or grabbing the person next to you. Yeah. Um, and I, I also think that like horror films are the great equalizer because, every, you know, someone can be like sort of a film snob, you know, which I'm guilty of sometimes. But then you go to a, a horror movie, whether you went there by, you know, on, on purpose or you were dragged there or you just accidentally find yourself at a screening of the beyond uh, and you're and you're screaming and and reacting physically you know so yeah. it really sort of like takes everyone down to the same like very human level which i i appreciate yeah yeah what well, kind of makes everybody vulnerable right and that's a that's a common experience but it's also a space where when we're when we're sort of put in that place we are more open perhaps to to sort of reach out mm-hmm. literally and also emotionally and so that's kind of neat you mentioned that um you really like the soundtrack. Yeah, it's a it's an Italian composer named uh, Fabio Frizzi, and and he does super kind of you know gothic horror, but with kind of an uh, Italian a little bit of a prog feel to some of it. But the film is set in Louisiana, so he's got a lot of like really interesting kind of you know Zydeco uh, Louisiana influence to it as well uh, it's it's an Italian film you know dubbed into English of course as as much of the Italian film industry especially the Italian genre film industry uh, is um, and yeah Fabio Frizzi he actually uh, did a US tour uh, doing a live score of that film a little while back and, and unfortunately I didn't I wasn't able to catch it I think they were pretty well sold out the couple shows that were in the Midwest here um, but 
uh, he's he's still kicking and still doing good work. Cool. Okay, number three. Um, this one's from 1985. It's Return of the Living Dead, which is a, a Dan O'Bannon film. It's sort of a, not exactly a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but sort of a sort of an in-continuity sequel homage. It's actually um, produced by and based on a treatment from John Russo, who was the writer of the original Night of the Living Dead. When John Russo and George Romero kind of parted ways, they had a sort of gentleman's agreement that they could both make their own offshoots of Night of the Living Dead. Romero went on to do Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and, and uh, you know, a handful of other films that kind of continued that feel uh, with the, you know, the social justice and the racial politics and, and, and all of that. And um, John Russo kind of went a slightly different uh, way. Uh, and, and he hired on a screen, a young screenwriter, Dan O'Bannon, who had done some work on um, a film called Dark Star. And uh, he'd done some work with um, on, on one of the early drafts of, of Ridley Scott's alien. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead. It's a it's a zombie movie, but it's ever so slightly self-aware. Let me ask you a question, kid. Did you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one where the corpses start eating the people, right? Sure. What, what about it? Did you know that movie was based on a true case? That's not possible. I mean, they showed zombies taking over the world. They changed it all around. What really happened was, back in 1969 in Pittsburgh at the VA hospital, there was a chemical spill. It's a lot of fun. We played it for um, the Late Shift of the Grand House, our, our second anniversary back in 2016. Uh, it's, it's funny without ever sort of sacrificing, you know, the scariness of it. Um, it's actually set on july 3rd so a lot of people watch it as a fourth of july movie or a summer movie and you know in conjunction it makes a good double feature with jaws or something like that it also has a great soundtrack uh kind of that early 80s uh punk rock thing rocky erickson the cramps 45 grave the damned TSOL, a lot of stuff like that. Um, you know, pretty good, fun stuff. Now, we invited Ross to share his top five horror films, and he did. But in editing the show, we realized this list was simply too epic to be set within a single film cast pod scene episode. It just wasn't responsible. That's why we're glad it's early October. We'll share with you the rest of Ross's top five before Halloween is here. And in the next episode, we'll also discuss Italian-French historical romance, Martin Eden, Wayne Wang's newest film, Coming Home Again, and gear up for the virtual return of Vino Verite. Until then, happy watching.